Well, you know, I've been actually calling a lot of great talent from the National Publicity Summit with amazing stories. And David Marion and Dana Golden are uh, no exception. First of all, welcome both of you to my Saturday sit down. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me your story. I know that you guys are at the summit. And actually, before we get even there, you guys are divorced, but you've worked on this project together. How has that been uh, post-divorce, if you don't mind me asking? It's been absolutely awful. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great. We really are enjoying the uh, process of collaborating on the book and, you know, building a brand uh, together. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of work, you know. Both of us are really putting in a lot of work and a lot of time. And uh, so far, we're real happy with a lot of the results we're getting. Well, tell us your story. Tell us how you got to this point of collaborating even after a divorce. Well, I'll tell you about that. I'll let David tell you the story previous to getting back to working together. But um, yeah, I'll tell you my side. She can tell you hers, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but what I wanted to say was um, went through a divorce, obviously. Obviously, there's bad times when you go through the divorce. But the bottom line is, David's an addict and David Marion, the guy without the addiction is a great guy and obviously um, loved him, fell in love with him and married him. Um, but his addictions were behaviors that um, I couldn't tolerate from me and our two daughters, right? So I needed to stand up for that. Um, so once David started finding his path and a different way and started in his recovery journey after we were divorced, um, I still have affinity to David. He's the father of my children. Um, there's a man in there I've always uh, respected and more so even now because of what he's gone through and how he's turned his life around. So coming back together to collaborate, we had a story to tell and we needed to help other people. We needed to show that not only is there hope for recovery, but there's hope for repairing families and relationships and getting your kids through a situation like this. And so it's been a real blessing to be able to share that with other people. David, when did you know that you really had the issue? Because I know that it's tough to really tell when you, it's time to, to act on stopping it. Well, I think I was probably nine years old when I started. You know, uh, there were signs early on, you know, kindergarten, first grade, the bus is outside. My mom tells a story. I went in and out of the house three to four different times to change my clothes because I was so unhappy with who I was. I was too tall, too ugly, I didn't fit in, my teeth were bad, my, you know, whatever it was, that I was just so uncomfortable in my own skin at such an early age. Wow. And yeah, you know, when I started using at an early age, I liked the way it made me feel and I liked the way others enjoyed my company. You and know? so tell us that story. So you started this at a very young age and, and when did, did the parents notice? What did they notice? You know, I often say um, addiction is like walking around with your fly open. Everyone notices it but you. We think we're fooling everybody, and we're really not. And I guess, um, you know, this went on through high school, college, and they just probably thought I was just using. And I remember I went to a treatment at 17 years old, an outpatient treatment. My mom had reminded me recently that. Forgot about that one. I was a little high on quaaludes during the whole treatment. Uh, so it really didn't stay. Alex, but, this is the first time I ever heard that he went to treatment at 17 years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's I, new to me. 
it was an outpatient treatment in Nassau Community College. Um, so, um, I'm sorry, the question was... Well, so first of all, you guys are New Yorkers. I did not know that you guys were New Yorkers. I am. Dane is, is from Columbus, Ohio. Well, so being on Long Island, did that influence you at all? Because I know it's a, it's a small town, kind of, and, and there's not much to do. So what was, was that environment affecting you, too? Well, I lived in a really nice, you know, neighborhood on the North Shore of Long Island. And, um, you know, everywhere you are, it's the Gold Coast of Long Island. There's a lot of money everywhere. Uh, yes, there was a lot of influences. And um, it definitely influenced my decision making. You know, the disease of more and more and more and wanting more, and you know, which ended up giving me the drive to become very financially successful and, you know, to succeed at what I did. David, obviously, though, you sort of had to, um, you sort of had to woo Dana. So how did you do it while you were dealing with this uh, addiction? Well, I had been sober. I came up to Minnesota to go through Hazleton, Betty Ford. Um, it wasn't Betty Ford yet. It was Hazleton Foundation in 1989. I was working on Wall Street. I was a sales manager and a uh, stockbroker at the time. Um, they said I was doing too much cocaine. And I just said, I don't think you guys are doing enough. It's the late right. 80s, you know? Right. Well, good, sure. man. We're rolling. And I came up here and I got clean for about, you know, 12, 13 years or so. Uh, I met Dana when I was three years sober. You asked how the family and how he ended up knowing too much. His family intervened on him when he was working on Wall Street. And they sent him on a one-way ticket to Minnesota. And you were there during this, right, Dana? No, we hadn't met yet. Okay. This was in 1989. I met Dana in 92. Okay. Uh, three months and a day later, we were engaged. Nine months later, we were married. Uh I remember walking down the aisle with my brother and I said, holy shit, I don't even know how to spell her last name. I mean, her middle name, it's Lynn. I don't know if there's an E on the end or not. <laughs> you know, it was quick. And, uh, last yeah. so, so you're sobered up. And Dana, you didn't know this part of, there, there was a part of him that was addicted, did you at the time? No, I, I knew he was sober. He had been sober for about three years. And, um, and I really appreciated that. I had had a fiance in the past that was, um, using and ended up in treatment. And I was so thrilled that I had met because I'm a codependent kind of attracted to the addict types. And I thought how great he's evolved. He's sober. He, uh, he was speaking up at Hazelden uh, once a month. I would go up and listen to him speak. Uh, you know, I, he had the world by the balls, you know, at that point. So everything to me was uh, perfect. And then when did it all unravel? What was the point that you guys started to see things were not as perfect? Well, I had a bunch of knee surgeries and, um, you know, I said that the first knee surgery that I had done, they put me on 180 opioids and I took two of them and I just loved the way it made me feel. Immediately called the doctor and said, doc, you're never going to believe it. I'm going to the bathroom. I open up the pill bottle. They spilled down the toilet. David, I'll write another prescription. It was that fast. I tried to stockpile my supply. And I got to ask this, did you become a supplier to others as well? Or was this strictly to you? Never. Okay, Never. good. Because I was making um, ridiculous amounts of money we were making. I had opened up a gold and silver brokerage firm here. I started working when I got up here with a good friend of mine who I brought up from Miami, who I had known for since years and years. 
Uh, long story short, he overdosed and died in 2000, and we bought the business from the family. And I watched him overdose. I caught there. I was given a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as he died. Uh, he was dead prior, but I still had to try. And did that change you watching that? Given a mouth-to-mouth? Well, no. Did, watching this happen, <laughs> did that change you? No, not at the time. Wow. Not at the time. That's it's dumb. always the same excuses. It's never going to be, it's never going to happen to me. I'm not as bad as him. You know, mm. they're doing harder drugs. And it turned out he died from the same drug that I ended up becoming addicted to. And that's such a big topic too. I mean, let alone your story. In America, we still have people addicted to painkillers alone. And, and we've got to stop that trend, don't you think? Yeah, I have actually worked in, uh, I sat in the Capitol in St. Paul, Minnesota for last year for nine months working with bipartisanship to come together to create the first opioid stewardship bill to hold the pharmaceutical companies accountable, increase their registration fees, use the money for uh, prevention and education in the high schools and junior highs. And um, it's a phenomenal bill that we created here. And I was and nine months later, I'm sure you're seeing success, and that must really make you proud. We're seeing a lot of good things from it. We really are. And Dana, how about you? This thing happens in 2000, and yet he still keeps going. So what was your thought process? Well, so believe it or not, it was not the opioids that got me to the point of divorce. It was his gambling, which as the money escalated in the business and the, um, the drug addictions escalated, so did his gambling habit. And um, it was just financially um, causing havoc in our lives. We were taking out second mortgages to pay the taxes every year on what he was gambling. And it was just- Explain that though to Alex. So in Minnesota, we have an alternative minimum tax. So you cannot write your uh, losses off against your gains um, like you can with the IRS. So David was Bally's in Vegas, largest slot player at, at the time. And it's because he was playing slots, he would get W um, nines right at the slot machine every time he hit a jackpot over eleven hundred dollars. And he was running. What's that, David? Over twelve hundred. Yeah. Twelve hundred dollars. So, so he, this this is being filed with the IRS in the state of Minnesota. So uh, he was running millions of dollars through the slot machines every year. And even though he was coming out at a loss at the end of the year, he still had to pay six point five percent on or four percent. How much was it, David? Nine percent of of his of his winnings. So we were paying one hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year on the money he was losing gambling. Dana, were you aware of this, or I was. I was aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so basically, I told David in two thousand and one. Uh, I mean, two years prior to that, I was saying you got to slow down. I'm not saying you got to stop. I'm just saying you got to slow down. He couldn't. He couldn't. And uh. 2001, I said, you got to move out and you got, literally you got to get your shit together. I, you know, we can't keep doing this. You're going to bankrupt us. So, so he moved out and, um, and I seriously thought six months, if he could get his shit together, we would work it out. And, and he just kept gambling and he, he and that's when he started lying to me. He told me he had stopped. I'd get bank statements that he was taking money out at the, at the casino. He said the bank statements were wrong. He doesn't know why they're saying that, you know, typical addict behavior. Uh, I don't know where that's coming from. So anyway, six months later, I filed for divorce. Actually, it was nine months later. It, well, it was August. So from January to August, I, he moved out, couldn't stop gambling. I filed for divorce. Well, first of all, David, did you 
were you just happy that you kept making the slots ring? Was that kind of your feeling at the time? Absolutely. I would win. I mean, I hit 10 jackpots, 10 or 11, over $100,000. I hit a slot for 200000 one time. 250000 one time. I remember when you called me to tell me. Yeah. And so when did you realize, well, I need to slow down here? Toward the end, you know. Was know it before the kickout or after the kickout? Or? No, it was after the, way after the kickout. Uh, I ended up getting an apartment um, in Minneapolis, and I lived there for four years, and, you know, I was still gambling. Um, I still had the business. The business was very successful. You know, we had a ton of employees working for us, and, um, yeah, our best year, I think we did 25000 in gross sales. I $25 million, $25 million Well, so you... You wouldn't go to uh, Gammonon, but did you, Dana, get involved with that uh, Gammonon? Well, I, when David, when I met David, I had already been going to Al-Anon because like I said, I had dated an addict previously. And um, so David was going to AA, I was going to Al-Anon. Uh, we both kept that up for a while. And I think um, David was gambling while he was going to that. And then, you know, at some point I fell off and Stop, I stopped going because I, you know, not that I had it figured out. I went to Al-Anon for 20 years. So I get, I get how it works. I get how the addicts work. I get how I worked. I get, I got the roles that we each played and I stepped out of the role. I was done doing the dance. Was there any legal trouble that you guys ran into David or Dana as you were gambling, as you were doing all these different things? I did not addiction? because I stepped out of it, but it, that's what, eventually got David to stop was he did run into um, a, a little investigation by the FBI, the BCA, the IRS, and the um, postal service. The, the mail inspector, postal inspector, you know, any name, any alphabet you want to put together. And how did you come, how did you come through that? Oh, it was a, you know, I'll tell you, there's a story that the day I came to my office, downtown Minneapolis, um, I had a secure code on our door that you had to punch in and I punch it in and I turn around for something caught my eye. And there's probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 federal agents standing there. And I said, whoa, someone's mm. going to have a bad day. Unbeknownst to me, didn't know it was me. Well, at the time I used to carry a pill bottle around and it had probably, I don't know, a few grams of heroin in it. And they come in my office, and I remember two FBI guys and a DEA or, or postal inspector guy come in my office. They want to talk with me. And I am sweating profusely because all I can think about is having this dope on me. And I got to get rid of it because I'm going to get searched when I leave. Right. Well, sure enough, I go in my office with them, and I move it from my front pocket to my underwear. I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, they won't find it. I'm walking around my desk, and what happens? It's rolling down my leg of my pants. Oh, oh my God. I'm beyond my, they're asking me questions, and I'm playing footsie with this pulled pill bottle. No dogs brought in, though, right, at the time? No dogs. No, they didn't have any reason for it. Um, and sure enough, I grab a pencil on my desk, and I start tapping it, tapping it, and I drop it on the floor. I pick it up with a pill bottle. I put it in one of my drawers. 
And they, my lawyer calls and said, you could leave. The FBI says, you can come back. You call this number and we'll let you come back in your office at four o'clock or whatever. Well, for the next seven hours, I'm thinking my life, as I formerly known it, is really over, right? <clears throat> Not only am I getting investigated for uh, mail fraud and money laundering, now all of a sudden it's going to be heroin too. I get back to my office around four o'clock, and what's the first thing I do? I look at my desk. The com every drawer was thrown out all over my desk. I don't know what they were doing or looking, and I'm searching for that pill bottle. I'm going to tell you the power of addiction, Alex. I sure enough find that pill bottle. And what's the first thing I do? I open it up and do two lines. Just been investigated by every agency in the Federal Bureau there are. And the first thing I could want to do is get high. That's the power of addiction. And that's, you know, this kind of story, you're saying it so stoically, but I have to believe there's emotion still that you feel telling the story itself. <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of emotion to it. There's a lot of embarrassment. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of um, a, a big letdown. You know, I am not that guy, but I was that guy. Mm. You know, and I really think that's the power of what happens when people get wrapped up in their types of addiction, completely out of control. That nothing mm. else matters except the next hit, because your body is physically craving it, and if you don't get it, the pain. It's almost as if somebody is inside you trying to cut themselves out with a steak knife is the only way I can explain this pain. Because when I ended up getting sober from this before I went to prison, the story was the nurse in this facility hospital I went to to detoxify for 30 days. She says, after three days, I, I came to, I guess, and I started screaming for her and I asked her, what's going on? She says, sir, you've been balled up in the corner making farm animal noises for three days. We would bring the food in. We put the cuff on your arm to make sure you're still okay. You were eating the food. You never got off that corner floor. That's how what kind of pain it was in. Did it almost feel like, did you ever feel like you were about to, to pass away or was there? I wanted to be dead. I wanted to die. It would have been easier than having to go through that. So what kept you alive? I mean, obviously, you probably had a faith in you that you could survive all of this. And Dana, chime in as well. What you were going through as all this is happening. Well, when this was happening, we, were, we weren't together. But obviously, the kids are still, he's still the father of the kids. So um, for a while, he didn't want them to come see him because of the shame and embarrassment. But as soon as he was able and feeling up to it, I would take the kids there as often as I could to... Uh, so they could visit him. And we just wanted to be a support to him. We knew what he was going through and how painful it was and how long this addiction had gone on. And he hadn't mentioned, but at one point he ran out of the Oxycontins, his black market, because he was buying them $8,000 at a time on the black market and that source dried up. And uh, he was in so much pain from the detoxing of that, that he called a friend over who put out a line in front of him and said, don't ask what it is, just do it. And uh, I can take away your pain. And that's when he got hooked on heroin. And so, and I didn't know that until well after we were divorced that he was ever doing heroin. I always thought it was just the opioids that he was um, detoxifying from. But um, yeah, so, you know, but the kids, I mean, we, I wanted to be a support to him. I wanted him to know we were behind him getting healthy because it had been way too long that he wasn't.
Well, that's, that is love right there. I mean, that is just love. And I love that you guys are sharing this story. And to be honest, it's one of the heaviest conversations I've ever had on this podcast. And the interesting thing, when you meet David and Dana at the, the NPS, they're very chipper, like, hey, we got the story. And then I'm like, wow, we're getting in-depth here. So I love that. Um, family secrets. I mean, did your families know? Did you try and keep this as secret as you could? Or what was their role? Obviously, with David, they were involved early but how about in the later stages? Were they still involved? What were their reactions? Well, you, 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 you have to realize his name and pictures were plastered all over Minneapolis and St. Paul magazine, or, uh, newspapers while this indictment was going on. And pictures on the front of, page. On the front page. And our kids had to endure that. They're, they're in junior high school at the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a lot. And you're right. It was very heavy. And keeping kids sane through that. You know, and it's not so much the, the other kids, but the parents of the other kids are saying hey did you see about sophie's you know dad in the paper and so the kids wouldn't know they're not reading papers but then the parents bring into it you know and the kids you know it's it's a whole thing keeping them sane through it let alone keeping david you know sane and recovering and yeah so it was a lot we know that you know sometimes people could be judgmental so were people really saying or even the school saying hey we're going to call np uh protective services on on you guys or was there that threat no no that's what? What did you say, David? Never once. Oh, yeah. I thought you said once. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, no, because um, uh, the kids were with me. We were divorced. I had, full, um, I had full physical custody of them, although David had rights to see them whenever he wanted. Um, so th they were always safe. There, there was one time, so I was close to a secretary of his at the office, and she would let me know if he was really bad at the time when it was his turn to take the kids or whatever. So I would make up excuses and whatnot to not bring the kids over if I knew that he was really high. And uh, one time he wanted them and I said, no, I'm not gonna bring them over. And he threatened to put out an Amber Alert and I took the kids out of my house and we went to a park and they did, the kids didn't know what was going on, but I didn't want him coming over high, picking up the kids. So there, there was definitely some of that. Well, let me ask you, do you feel like uh, sometimes female, uh, the moms of kids and the dad in the situation are kind of weaker and they would bring them to that situation. Like, what do you have for advice for those who may not have the will that you had? Well, kids have to come first and their safety has to come first. And, um, you know, it's not a matter of my strength or his intimidation to want the kids. It's about, I got to protect my children. And if you always put the kids first, which is exactly why David and I are doing what we're doing now together. I mean, we've always put the kids first and, um, and, you know, even when David was high and stuff, he was reasonable enough most of the time to understand, you know, kids first, let's keep the kids safe. You know, it was hard to remind him at times you have an addiction, you know, right. you're not in a healthy place, but you, you got, you just got to stand up. Now they've actually come together and made this book addiction rescue addiction rescue and uh, i think it's a huge story especially now because in quarantine we still have addiction happening we still have issues rising while we're all locked in and that's why i thought what a timely conversation but first of all with the book this has to be some catharsis for you guys to collaborate on this yeah, yeah. definitely the book is really it's a self-help book but it does share quite a bit of david's story um, but we wanted it to be a really great blend of research, uh, factual numbers, um, advice, um, David's story, 
and the tools and tips that people need to, first of all, identify if there's a problem, you know, what are the excuses? What are the warning signs? Um, and what are the rules that are going to require of you to get into recovery? And what are you going to need to do to stay there? We have a five action process to get in and stay in recovery. And, um, and it's really a book to help other people find uh, their, their happy ending. And it, I can guarantee it's as raw as we're having this conversation because they call it the No BS Guide to Recovery. So now that leads me to my next point and my question, is there a lot of BS going on when it comes to recovery that people are being told that maybe we shouldn't listen to? Yes. Yes. Because as an interventionist, uh, life recovery coach today, national public speaker, I have visited many, many treatment centers. I've actually done an intervention on a guy. I pulled him out of a treatment center in St. Petersburg, Florida, a very famous musician, and ended up taking him to a different facility after we did the intervention to make sure that he still wanted to go. But there are places that just hang a shingle, um, call themselves a treatment center, because they know they're going to get funded from the insurance companies. And what they're providing, honestly, is shit, okay? Um, there are some really, really renowned places in this country. The key is, if you have an addictive personality or a problem that you're dealing with, honestly, 30 days on a rinse cycle is not enough time. If you've been using 20, 15, 30 years, whatever it might be, you're going to need an extended period of time to retrain your mind, body, and spirit to live a different way because you are so programmed into the habitual life of an addictive person and everything needs to be programmed. You know, they often say it's an easy program. All you have to do is change your entire life, you know, and it's right. really, um, it's quite a daunting process. That's why many don't get through it. David, though, I could sense, because we're here today talking, you had the will, and I'm, did you believe in God? Did you, did, has he been in your life as well? What, what was his yes. role in this? Yes, I finally, you know, I connected with a higher power who I choose to call God today, and believe me, it, uh, it took a while. You know, my first run through recovery, the first 10, 12 years, I often said I would go to meetings, I had sponsors, I had sponsees. I was working the deal. I learned this program inside and out, but I was missing the spiritual component mm. because I hadn't changed a lot of my behaviors because I was still hanging out with guys that were still using, okay, uh, coming in and out of the program. And um, I'd lived with four guys before I met Dana and, you know, bad influences, not only on me, but probably me on them. You know, mm. I was still wild. I was a, wild guy you know um doing crazy things it didn't i was an excitement junkie didn't bother me to get in you know crazy nights or whatever it is dana did that actually sort of draw you to him because he had this kind of side that was exciting and adventurous and oh for sure he's you can you, just by talking to I him i can see it yeah yeah he's charisma he's the life of the party he's you know was super successful and fun and yeah, I was very drawn to all of that. And at the time he was sober. So, you know, it was like the perfect combination. Well, for you also, did they, as a family member of an addict, did they give you BS things to do too or, or what? Um, you know, I, 
really wasn't involved in his treatment because the first time he went to treatment, I wasn't, hadn't met him yet. And the second time we went to treatment, we were already divorced or separated. But on so, Monday nights, we used to go to a meeting together. I went to my AA meeting and Dana would go to an Al-Anon meeting in the same church. Yeah, oh, wow. we were very involved that way. And one thing I do want to mention about our book, Alex, is that we do not subscribe in the book to any one type of program. There isn't a one-size-fits-all program for anybody. And yes, 12-step program is very successful for a lot of people, but we do approach um, all different options, depending upon what the addiction is, how long you've had the addiction. Um, there's more options than just a 12-step program. And we do refer to the spiritual piece a lot, but it doesn't always mean it has to be sure. God. Sure. You know, it you know, can be the universe, uh, the whatever power, just grading yourself, something to help hold you accountable and be accountable to. Absolutely. Let and me that clarify that. I want to just add on to that a little more. I'm a 12-step guy, right, for me. But I have worked with so many people, and I have seen holistic therapeutic approaches to recovery sure. become successful. And I always say, I don't care what path it is. You know, if you want to do equine therapy, you want to do a wilderness excursion, there's surfers um, therapy, whatever it might be, there's, uh, you know, CBT, any type of therapy, but you got to get on a path. I don't care what it is. You have, and this book tells you about that. Part of the five-step action process plan is that you got to get on a path. You know, you have to do something because if you don't take any action for your behaviors, you're going to end up doing the same thing, right? Okay. Can I get a little personal? Because this is kind of um, something I've never said on the, my podcast. But um, one time, because I'm only 90 pounds, like I'm, I'm light because I only have one leg. And so I don't think I have a lot of that weight from the second leg. Anyway, I tended to drink a lot myself. And I'm a, my mom exposed me when I interviewed her on Mother's Day. So I'm just going to add on to this. She actually talked about this on my podcast on Sunday. So for Mother's Day, which was good because actually got me thinking about those times and how I really corrected course. Well, one time I kind of fell on my rollerblade on one leg at Penn Station. And then I said, you know what? Done. I'm not doing this anymore. So. And that's when you quit drinking? That's when I pretty much said, this is it. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, sorry about that date. What did you say, David? It's a complete mindset. You know, some people have the ability to just stop for me and somebody who really is an addict. There's a mental obsession that happens, Alex. And what that mental obsession is, I could be driving down the road on the nicest day doing great. And all of a sudden that thought comes in to get high, go gamble, go do whatever it might be, you know, and I act upon that. But I also have a physical allergy. Now, I don't have a physical allergy if someone's uh, allergic to berries or peanut butter or nuts. They might break out in rashes, right? When I drink and I use, I break out in spots. Vegas, mm. Mexico, prison. I mean, I end up in spots you wouldn't believe. So I can't control it. I cannot. I don't have a shutoff switch. I mm. often see people go out and have a drink and they leave half the drink. And I used to think, my God, are they going to finish that? What the hell is wrong with them? How do they leave a half a drink, right? Mm, yeah. Yep. Is what happens. And what controls that mental obsession? It's a spiritual malady. Mm. Spiritually, something is missing. Because if I had a connection with a higher power prior to, 
I knew how to squash that obsession. And we talk about that in the book. We talk about the power of obsession, that it's got to be dismembered and dismantled immediately. Otherwise, what happened? The thought comes in. We're acting it out. Well, I'm romanticizing about a scene already. I have played it out. My God, it feels so good. The next thing I do, I'm sitting at that bar drinking or I'm sitting in that crack house, whatever it is, because I haven't disrupted the obsessive thought process. Now, are you talking about today or this was prior to all of the soberness? No, this is today even. It's what I work with guys and that's, you know, I dispense that message Mm. on the importance of that, shattering that obsession, disrupting it. Alex, are you asking if he still gets those obsessive thoughts to go use or gamble? Yeah, yep. I don't get him in the same obsessive way that I did. A okay. lot of times, you know, listen, I have the, I call it the uh, boys in the committee upstairs, and they go nuts. You know, it's almost like there's a circus up there. There's a jungle, <laughs> you know, there's a trapeze guy, and there are guys going on in there. And, um, but you know what? I laugh at them today. I say, thanks for sharing, boys. I ain't playing. You're not getting, you know, like the left and right shoulder talk, you know, the the angel and the devil talking to each other. That's right. right. You know, Uh, when you spend um, 36 months, 11 days, seven hours and six minutes in a federal prison box, you learn a lot about yourself and you do a lot of introspective work. David, that is uh, another conversation I feel like, because just experiencing that must've changed you. 20 ways from Sunday, you know, like it must have really changed you. Yes. Um, it definitely changed me as a man mm. going through the process. Um, it was really, really a, uh, emotional. It was a life changer. You know, listen, you don't, I grew up in a great household. You know, my brother's a doctor, my sister's a lawyer and I'm heading to federal prison. You know, it just wasn't expected for a guy like me. Um, David, how, is, how important is it that our stories of struggle, I mean, all of us have these struggles, putting it out there just so like sort of there's no secrets, right? I feel like that's kind of why I'm driven to do this, just open it all up and be real about things. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason struggle comes before success, at least in the dictionary, right? And um, interestingly enough, we all have to find that. <clears throat> struggle. We all have to crawl before we walk. Okay. I had to fail several times before I could succeed. And I'm a guy that's not afraid to fail because I will try it and try it and try it. You know, um, going to prison was the lowest point of my life. Mm. And, um, yeah, that was very, very difficult. Dana, I've got a question for you. There are also, you know, female addicts, female alcoholics. Have you worked with any of them, either of you, on combating their illnesses? Oh, yeah. Well, David typically tends to the addicts, and then I tend to families, you know, because the families get left in the wake, right? It's typically the addict that gets the attention, the help they need, all the focus is on the addict. And so many times the family that's become very dependent or codependent, in a lot of cases, on the addict, they get left in the wake of not knowing what to do or how to handle it. And so I try to come in and show hope that they will be okay, whether the addict is using or in prison or wherever they land. 
that they're going to be okay. And those relationships, if they, if wanted, will get repaired and mended. So it's really a whole, it's a family disease. Addiction is a family disease. Mm. There's the uh, affected and then there's we families are affected and then the afflicted the addict themselves but i'm also saying like females that have addictions have you guys worked with females who oh, have addictions oh of course yes yes oh, yes. oh yeah absolutely. A, yeah interesting story i did an intervention in um gosh in oh minot north dakota maybe or bismarck i don't remember quite like the town registered nurse got a call from a friend and they said she's doing you know, too much meth. I go, well, how the heck do you guys know that? They said every other nurse is seeing three patients a day. She's seeing nine. She's wild. She's crazy. Did an intervention, got her into a good, great facility in Minnesota. She did 30 days there. She says, what do I do now? I said, it's probably going to do a halfway house for another three months. Um, and then she went to Hazleton Betty Ford and she, I recommended their halfway house because I love their program. I think they have one of the best programs in the world that they offer. Mm -hmm. And after that, she says, now what? I said, sober living. She did three months of sober living. I get a lot of speaking opportunities around this country. I'm pretty grateful for the university of Minnesota called me and guess what? They had asked me if I would speak to 150 graduate nursing students. And I said, sure, I'd love to. Who do I call? I call this woman. Let's call her Andrea for the name. Okay. Uh, I called Andrea and I said, Andrea, tomorrow morning, meet me at the University of Minnesota. I'm speaking. and It's going to be great in front of a nurse. And she goes, oh, this is great. Five minutes before I said, by the way, hon, uh, you're speaking today also. She yeah. says, what? I've never done this. I've never done. Now she's nine months sober. And let me right. tell you, when she spoke, it was the most powerful story that these nurses have heard. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Hmm. When we got done, she looked at me and she says, my God, David, I've been looking for this feeling in the dope bag on the bottom of the bottle my whole life. And I found it today. I found it in recovery. Powerful. Wow. Wow. This is, um, this is tearing me up a little bit because of all the stories of how we can control our destiny, right? That's also a big part of this, that we have the power to do it and and really as you say set a path but david you said something a, a while ago you know you have to have the will you have to have the spirit you know you have to have the the willpower to do this was clearing your name a big driving factor like i want my daughters to see that i'm not this person and i want her friends and her parents friends you know friends parents and all that was that a, a factor 100 percent, absolutely yes Till the day I die, I won't stop this process because it's so important for me. You know, I'll tell you something. Um, <clears throat> probably about a year ago, I got a call from um, Minnesota Federal Court. Mm. And I was asked to have coffee with one of the highest ranking federal judges in the state of Minnesota. And interestingly enough, he wanted to have me in his chambers. Well, it certainly happened to be the same judge that sentenced me a federal judge that sentenced me had heard that i've been doing a couple of good things from trial lawyers out there they've always mentioned my name uh, my particular lawyer would tell me stories that oh i ran into your judge he always said how's my you know how's he doing you know and sure enough at sentencing that 
um, years before, I had told the, the judge, I said, you know, Your Honor, someday I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. And he said, sure. And I got a call from them. And I went into his chambers, and um, I remember the feeling of meeting this judge, how powerful it was. And we sat there in his office for probably an hour, an hour and a half, telling him about the process. He believed in me at mm -hmm. sentencing, and he went below the guidelines. I was, uh, the guidelines were 78 to 87 months, and he sentenced me to 60 months. And it was pretty incredible. And, you know, we were laughing, telling stories, and really heartfelt stuff also that he probably has never heard because I keep it pretty raw. It doesn't matter if you're a federal judge or whoever. And um, three quarters of the way through, he asked me, he says, do you mind if I use you as a reference to guys going through what you went through? Mm -hmm. And I said, Your Honor, I'm going to tell you exactly what my lawyer said at sentencing. When we walked into court at sentencing, my lawyer looked at me and said, you're about to meet the man closest to God. He has total control of your future. I said, of course you can use me as a reference, Your Honor. And he probably emailed me three, two or three times after, you know? It was just a wonderful experience, full circle, you know? Well, you just remind me, you know, sometimes people write books and they throw other people through the mud. Like, it was because of them, I was this. And yet you guys are, you're taking full responsibility for this. Um, why, I mean, why is it though that people tend to just write books and blame people for their own actions and why, how can we get away from that? You know, I want, I do want to say something to that, Alex, because the judge that sentenced him at sentencing said the exact same thing. He said, you are one of the very few defendants that I have had in my chambers that is taking responsibility for what he's done and not blaming it on your managers and your, the other people. And they did it to me. And uh, he actually went lighter on the sentence because he felt that David did take full responsibility. So you're right. It doesn't happen often. And he also had so many letters from the community members and people stand, you know, whether it's uh, other um, just really well-to-do people who knew the character of me. Mm. And nobody asked to reduce my sentence per se. They said that this is a good man. And that's what the judge grabbed from that, which mm. was interesting. You know, I can look back on the situations that happened, although um, I probably wasn't present physically, emotionally, mentally, mm. when a lot of this stuff happened. Um, I was out of town a lot. I did, it happened under my watch, my company. I owned 100% of it, and I took full responsibility for anyone. Anyone else who they were looking at, I told them absolutely not. Wow. They wanted me, and I was going to give it. And you did, and that's, that's just very, very noble of you, I would say. And, and to your question, well, oh, I was going to just say, and to your question, so many addicts live in denial, right? And you asked, you know, why don't some of them take the, the blame? And they, because they're in denial. It's everybody else's fault. And you, you can't live in that place and recover. You know, you have to take responsibility for your actions. Dana. But a lot of this is, oh, yeah, one more thing, Alex. Also part of it is if I tell on somebody else, they're going to be doing my time. Hmm. And that's what happens, okay? A lot of witnesses and a lot of people who um, want to tell on other people, you know, use the term rat on them or whatever it is, they're going to tell on them so someone else is going to do their time rather than them. 
Wow. David was ready to face his consequences for sure. Well, and Dana, that's probably in addition to your respect for him and you know that he wasn't, you know, he, you knew who he was beyond the drug use, but him taking responsibility had to really want you to keep in touch with him. Like that drew you to stay in touch with him. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I always knew deep down he was a, he was a great guy. His addiction has just gotten in the way of that. And by the way, you guys have an amazing stat on your one sheet. One in every 3.6 Americans. And I've got to ask this. You guys want to change the narrative with your book, Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery. And so let's say there are a whole bunch of other stories of these kind of rescues and recoveries. Why does yours stand out? (laughs) There's several reasons, obviously, because it's a true story. It's a story of a guy who's lived it and lived through it. Okay. There's factual data in there. You know, not only talk about the recovery, mind, body, and spirit, we talk about food in there too. How food, eating food is going to create the happiness or the depression inside of you. You know, it's all the combination package. You can't just tap into a little piece of this and expect the full results in recovery. And I think that we have uh, really gone through all of that. Mm. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that by saying um, there are really good books out there as well that are written by people that knew a true story of somebody that didn't live through it, right? Tom Farley wrote a book about his brother, Chris Farley, who died of an overdose. So here's a book coming from someone that actually, you know, lived through the addiction and a firsthand account of how you might be able to get through it. And then I I just want to piggyback on what David said. We approach addiction and recovering from addiction in a way that's very holistic you can't just find a higher power and get sober you can't just go to treatment for 30 days and stay in recovery you have to look at the body mind and spirit and how you can heal the body how you can heal the mind you know you've got to get through your limiting beliefs of thinking i'm just an addict i amount to nothing i'm a loser i'll never get it i'll never figure it out you have to change your whole mindset you have to change the way you have a spiritual connection out there in the world. And like David said too, you got to take care of your body. You got to heal your body. You got to fix your gut because it's going to keep you from having the cravings in your brain by fixing the food that goes in your gut. So there's all that information in the book. And David, with, with the body now, how are you nurturing it? Um, pretty good. I mean, I work out every day. I'm in the, probably one of the, probably the best shape of my life. You know, I'm always doing something, you know. I uh, played basketball today. I worked out, lifted weights, and, you know, I'm always doing something. So you're doing it even with the gyms closed then? What's that? You're doing it even though all the gyms seem to be closed down? House. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. You know, I got a 20 and 30-pound dumbbell, and, you know, it's enough for me to just do a, constantly do stuff to work in the muscles. By the way, Tom Farley is a dear, dear friend of mine, and he did write a great book on his brother as well. Um, and SNL has so much tragedy on that, you know, so much with uh, Belushi and Farley and John. I mean, just a whole list of them. It was really sad, actually. Yeah, oh, that's crazy. 80s, man. 80s and 90s when, you know, cocaine and started mixing it with heroin and it was these um, toxic doses. But even so today, we're dealing with an epidemic and a pandemic, the opioid epidemic, you know, the fentanyl, all this stuff, car fentanyl that's getting into these drugs today. Um, 
the overdose rate is incredible. We're still losing 70,000 people a year to overdose. Well, at least there's some sort of stopping of that, right? We're stopping shipments little by little here, which is good. Yeah, you know, it's it's a tough deal. It really is. Um, You know, the cartel is really in Stanford, Connecticut, right? We're Purdue Pharmaceutical and creating this stuff and um, lied to us for so many years about it. It's not addicting. Um, You can't overdose from it. I was a first-generation guy, opioid guy, when they first came out. And I remember the times when my heart was skipping beats as I'm laying down thinking, whew, I don't know what's going on. I know what it is today. Mm. And that's the way I look at life. You know, I should have been dead a long time ago. I really should have. The drinking, the driving, the drugs I ingested, the places that I was thrown out of two countries from, mm. you know, as a kid in college, literally thrown out by the chief of police. And thank God I wasn't locked up then. Which and countries? Bermuda and St. John's. Wow. Yeah. It's a story for another podcast. Really though, this is like never, this is, this is what we can go on for hours about this, but um, to sum up and because I still feel like it is strong to be addicted in quarantine and families are dealing with this. What's your message to those who still have that craving, that kick, and it's probably a little easier to get it during lockdown. What is your, uh, and, and Alex, I, I do want to say before David goes into answering the question that everything is on the rise. Liquor sales are, are up. Online liquor sales are up 387%. Marijuana sales, drug sales, they are all up. And we've talked about, everybody's talking about the COVID-19, you know, weight gain, everybody's binging on food. So there is a ton of it going on. And not to mention David's hearing about relapse, people that have been five, 10 years sober, relapsing for the first time during during this and the calls to the helplines and the treatment mm-hmm. centers are up too so you're absolutely right it is thank a you for knowing that and uh, we just saw san francisco has hotels piping it into this to the homeless community that shell that house that's housed there and i'm like are you kidding me right now you know a lot of the reason also is the mental health issues that's hard, attached to addiction mm. Know, and a lot of times you're going to have a co-occurring disorder, dual diagnosis, right? Guys riddled with depression, anxiety, fear, uh, anger we're seeing at spiked rates. We're seeing suicide rates that are staggering. You know, we're seeing domestic abuse. These are numbers that are just, we've never seen anything like this. I know um, people, I've gotten calls that, you know, couples that are very successful, uh, uh, the husband is sober, and their bills are astronomical. They are both out of work, collecting unemployment. And what happens? The husband relapses because of financial insecurity. And he is a mess. Now they're in the process of selling a home, getting divorced. I mean, these are the stories that I'm hearing, the real-life stories of what's happening in this. I spoke at a meeting last night on Zoom, an AA meeting. And I talked about the current landscape. You know, I could get to Pitataka and uh, there was a lot of people on this meeting and they were grateful for that topic because mm. the current landscape is a breeding ground for addiction right now. You know, people are getting hooked on stuff they've never been hooked on, whether it's online gambling, porn, shopping, drinking, smoking. It's all these different outlets. Food mm. is another one, right? And it's really dangerous what's going on. 
In the book, we talk about some of the tools and techniques as well. How do we approach this? How do you live in a situation like this and ask for help? Yeah. Right? How do you pick that 400-pound telephone up and call somebody? I was, gonna, I was just going to ask you guys, have you had calls from people relapsing during this time? I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten. I looked at my phone yesterday, Alex. I talked to 16 different people, either in recovery or trying to get back into recovery. It's mm. a large number of people on a daily basis. That's my life. And I love it. I'm, you know, I'm blessed. Can I ask you guys a weird question? Because I'm, I'm kind of feeling this. Podcasting is my outlet right now, right? I can't really go out. I can't really, I can rollerblade around town. But like podcasting is kind of my thing. What if people start saying, oh, you know, you're saying too much about yourself on the air. Like, how do, is there a possibility you could get addicted to doing something like this, podcasting, and saying well, the wrong thing? You know, there's podcast anonymous meetings now that they're talking about. A lot of the podcasters <laughs> are on now. <laughs> Alex, the bottom line is, is if it's out of balance in your life. If it takes over your life, if it's the only thing you think about and you're consumed with, if it's starting to cause consequences in your relationships, if you're neglecting other areas of your life, because podcasting is so important to you. And that's what life is. It's a balance, right? It's keeping all those pieces of the pie in check. And we talk about that in the book. We have a list of things you need to keep in check. Like, is, am, am I approaching my sobriety like I should? Is, am I getting along with people? Am I flipping people off on the freeways? Am I in an angry place? Right? So there's a checklist of things to check in with yourself to make sure you're staying in balance. And that's all in the book. And so I've, that's what you look for. I've got to check that out because I do feel like this is an outlet now because nothing much else to do. And I do actually do radio work too. And that's also a big focus. But after that, it's like, well, I guess I'll type on the mic again. You know, so. you know if you find yourself, Alex, throughout the day, obsessing and compulsing about it, you know, mm-hmm. then it's important to do some certain, you know, some of the techniques and tools. And I say, um, one of the greatest wholesale miracles of the 20th century is when man and woman began to put confession on paper. And you begin to write about this stuff. Why is it so important that I'm obsessing about being on that podcast? What is it in me that's missing that I have to fulfill it with that podcast? And we begin to take a look at it and break it down. And all of a sudden, we learn how to rip this stuff from the roots inside. We don't take little pieces, little leaves off the tree. We go down and suck it out completely. And then all of a sudden, you're going to get clarity and freedom you haven't had. David, Dana, please come back. This has been really good. And I'm going to take a lot of your advice because I wanted to, I want this to be a balance. So thank you so much. Alex, I just want to mention along with the book, in in each chapter of the book, there are questions at the end for reflective questions. And on David's or my website, um, you want me to throw those out there? Yes, please. I forgot to ask you that. So go for it. So so David is theliferecoverycoach.com. Uh, mine's just danagolden.com. And both of our websites have a, a free download of a workbook that goes along with the book. So it has a summary of each chapter. It has the questions from each chapter and it gives you the writing space. You can print it out and mm. have writing space to do those reflective questions. And it's a great tool to, you know, soul search, do some journaling, figure some things out. It's really, it's really helpful. So, and that is a free download. Uh, David, Dana, do you guys have Twitter as well? Yep. I have a Twitter account, David Elmarian. Um, also, I'm on social media. Uh, I have a business Facebook page as well. 
Um, my email is david at theliferecoverycoach.com. My phone number is 612-849-7509. I usually, you know, get a lot of calls and I always, if I'm busy, um, I always say, if it's an emergency, call twice in a row. That's how I know. I see the same number coming twice. If I'm in a meeting, I'll step out. Um, because right. this is life and death, what I deal with. You know, being on the front line fighting addiction, I don't know. If I miss that call, there's going to be another one. And well, that's, that's... Please reach out. Uh, if you ever have any questions, we'd love to talk. and um, We're here for anybody and everybody. Well, we will definitely take you up on that. David Marion, Dana Golden, thank you so much, and God bless you both. Thank you for your time and the opportunity to speak with you. And uh, we'll be back. It's Keep It Real with Alex Garrett, Saturday Sit Down. Talk to you soon.